0: And one, welcome everybody to the Doctrines of Rad podcast. I am Drew. This is Logan somewhere on your screen and joining us the moment that so many of us have been waiting for. Like we are- Michael Jones. I, we, <laughs> just, <laughs> look, man, we, uh, look, I know you are a humble servant of God, my friend, but we are, we have been very excited to have you onto the podcast. So welcome to the Doctrines of Rad.
1: I'm very, very flattered. Very flattered. I always never know what to say to compliments. I always think you could, you could do better. Trust me. I just...
0: <laughs> yeah. I've had to learn too, man, over the years. It's like, you know, there at some point you can just be like, okay, thanks. You know, like, I appreciate it. You know, that you guys like me and stuff, but you have to always be careful too. It's like, well, where do we cross that line between uh, you know, our ego and our pride and everything else? Cause uh, I mean, look at, look at Paul, how much he boasted, you know, or was, was able to boast and yet didn't count it all as a loss. So, mm, uh, yeah. that's kind of the stance that I take is like, yeah, if I could boast, I probably would have good reason to, but, uh, I counted all as loss either way. Cause Christ crucified is all that matters. So, yeah, um, and,
2: and your work is
0: like, I, like I, I appreciate what you do, man. Um, yeah.
2: Like you've, like, come, yeah. you've, you've come up in several like text group conversations of ours where like recently, and I, I was telling Drew that I was going to bring this up, that, uh, we had, uh, a brother of ours that was like dealing with this, what he thought was a, a contradiction in scripture. And so I like just doing a devotional in the morning, decided to just take a very chillaxed like stance at it. Like, Hey, here's my thoughts. Um, which caused me a lot to do a lot of speculation and then, uh, one of the uh, one of our guys was like, "Well, here's what Michael Jones has to say since your video." I was like, "Well, Andrew, nobody cares what Michael Jones has to say about this, right?" And obviously, and in there, and I admitted, I was like, "Hey, I'm doing a lot of speculation here." Um, and then I watched your video, and I was the next person to text, and it was, "Hey, I agree with everything Michael says in this video. It is spot on." So, um, which video? So was it was the uh, Genesis. Uh, I'm gonna to have to go through my text messages. Basically, how you're you're welcome, Logan. Thanks, Andrew. Uh,
0: Drew, do you remember? Was it uh, something on Genesis 13, that, or there was a number uh, about Jesus culture? ascending and descending,
2: right? And if you read oh. it in context, right? Oh, obviously, that Jesus is bringing a message from heaven that no one else has, right? But then yeah. obviously we have to look at Enoch and Elijah, and like, well, did they ascend? Um, like, where where do we? Where do we see that, or where is that a contradiction? Is it not a contradiction? Um, in your video, like, like if you're doing proper hermeneutics and you're just reading through the passage, what is being said? How? Do, it, which, which, like, begs me to ask: What is your methodology when you're reading scripture? Uh, do you immediately go to scholarly work? Do you just take your time through it yourself? Um, if you do have a question, then you you break out Greek and Hebrew if necessary, then go into scholarly work. At what point do you start to go to commentaries and other other sources
1: well it depends on what i'm doing if i'm doing a devotional i'm not but i'm just if i'm trying to understand it i'm going to go to the scholars right away because okay. you're not you're not a biblical expert i i there are people who have spent their years writing just a commentary on luke or just matthew and they're going to know more than i would ever know so i'll go to commentaries i'll see what they want to say and i'll see what's also in the greek i'll do a word comparative i'll see you know i'll look around. But it's very important that we, when we're doing these types of things, see what experts have already said. I mean, if I'm doing something on Matthew, I'm going to go to Craig Keener's commentary, because Craig Keener is probably one of the leading scholars today, in my view, on New Testament. And so why wouldn't I see what someone who has done far more work on this document uh, than I ever have? How did you get into
2: all this? Like, what you're—I I mean, you Sean called you a philosopher. Like, you—do you consider yourself a philosopher? Like, is, at that level of, like, hey, I am a philosopher. Do you? Are you a, Do you consider yourself a scholar? In a lot. Well, of I do
1: have a master's in philosophy now.
2: You're right. I
0: saw so that.
1: I congrats. By so the way. I do.
0: I you need a doctorate so, so I can one? call you
1: Doctor Jones, like Indiana. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's on my list for sure. Uh, I think I can call myself a philosopher now because I have a master's uh, that my, my professor said I could, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I guess I would put myself there, but so yeah, I'm, I, I have a master's in philosophy. I don't know if I'd call myself a scholar yet because I haven't really published anything. Mm. Nice.
0: That actually answered yeah. my question. Cause I was, I was, I consider you to be a scholar now. I don't, I mean, that's just my opinion. Uh, but one of the very first, uh, interactions that you and I had, Mike was, uh, after a video was made about uh, Genesis and the possibility that uh, there may have been human beings on earth prior to Adam and Eve. And I, my first thought was like, absolutely not. Like I've everything mm-hmm. in my being that has been taught from, from a, a you know, a young Christian age uh, says no. And then, uh, then you were like, cause I tagged you and I was like, come on, dude, like come, come, I'm, I'm, I'm sense into <laughs> this. And you're like, well, I kind of, I, I kind of agree a little bit, or at least <laughs> no, possible. And so I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> then you led me to one of your videos on on your Genesis series, which is a several video series on YouTube. Uh, and it absolutely blew me away. I mean it 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 that alone, that video alone introduced me to a way of thinking that I had never considered before. So it's uh, good. Well, and so in my view, I think that you are a scholar, sir. I think that you are on your way to being uh, a a type of person that will be referenced in the future, uh, long after we've probably passed on and gone to be with the Lord. Uh, People will be going to Michael Jones as reference for their uh, doctrine and soteriology uh, in their churches, maybe.
1: No pressure then. I better make sure I get everything right. Right?
0: (laughs) right.
2: Einstein said, uh, it's not... True intelligence isn't what you can remember, but where it, the ability to find it, right? And I'm yeah. paraphrasing that, right? So, your ability to go out and find the information to have the correct stance on something is in itself an act of intelligence, right? Because I'm remembering, mm-hmm. and that actually makes me feel good, right? Because remembering scripture is really difficult for me. It is really hard for me to just like pull something out. Um, and it's just a matter of repetition. Logan okay, is notoriously
0: intelligence also. Very. That's a big yeah. part. Yeah.
2: The IQ difference between us is well over a hundred. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm at so, like four.
0: <laughs> so when talk, give us a little bit, if, if you don't mind, Mike, give us a little bit of your testimony. Like where, how long have you known the Lord? How, you know, when did you really start getting into uh, your channel and what you did with, like what inspired, inspiring philosophy. But even before that, like what is, who are you in the Lord? When did you meet Jesus?
1: Yeah, that's kind of a boring story, unfortunately. Um, I was just raised Christian, but I went through a pretty sharp agnostic period. I was never an atheist, though. I still, to this day, don't think atheism makes sense.
0: Uh, And so I went
1: through this period where I was uh, just sort of like searching, doesn't really want to be a Christian. I used to get picked on by kids at church. Mm. So, however, I was really into mythology. So I was studying things like Egyptian and Greek mythology just for the fun of it. And then I was like, "Well, let me start studying evidence against Christianity." And I think it just may have been fate, but I I came across some of the worst arguments against Christianity. People claiming like that Jesus was a copy of Horus or of Dionysus, and I already knew the mythologies. I was, "This is just crap!" Like, so you know, maybe if I would have found better resources, things would have been different. But that put me on a path to thinking that maybe that evidence against Christianity was bad, and. So I started studying the evidence for Christianity, and I found that quite compelling and interesting. So I eventually just slowly came back to becoming a Christian. Of gotcha. uh, course, later I, I came to better arguments against Christianity. I still to this day don't think they, they work. Uh, I think the argument for the evidence for Christianity is far better. But that's kind of generally my story of how I got to where I'm at.
2: And I have, so uh, was there was was there a turning point like yeah. in that moment where like the, there was a piece of evidence that you're like, boom, that's it, this is truth.
1: It's, well, the rather rather resurrection evidence, I thought, was very compelling still to this day, uh, like the fact that Jesus was buried in the tomb, the fact that his body went missing. It's like, well, where are the disciples going to hide the body? Uh, so it's his Passover when Jesus dies. The, the city is flooded with pilgrims. Uh, so you're telling me that the, the disciples or somebody else uh, came in and got rid of that body whether the city is flooded with pilgrims and no one saw anything or was able to report it or bring it forward. And then immediately after the disciples are proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead in Jerusalem where the same would have had the means and the motive to debunk them right away. The body, we have the bones, they're right here, game over. And we don't see any evidence of that. Uh, of course, there are, there could be lost sources, but we can't go on sources we don't have. We can only go on the data that we do have. And the data that we do have For me the best explanation the most plausible uh the least ad hoc the one that has the most explanatory scope and power is that jesus rose from the dead nice so what is uh
0: when you began your youtube
1: journey what inspired that how did that come oh well that was back in like 2011 so you got to think aeons ago when you all were young probably still in diapers logan And so it was a long time ago. (laughs) It was basically at the time, YouTube was still very young. Uh, It had not, people had no idea what to do with it yet. Uh, Like, they didn't, like, you know, no one was really taking it seriously. But I did notice there's a lot of atheists on YouTube and a lot of younger Mm -hmm. creationists. And I'm like, there's got to be something better. Someone should do something about this. So, you were that yeah, guy that's kind of what happened I got stuck with a nighttime security job where I had to sit in a trailer for eight hours and just do nothing like it's just they needed a presence on the site so I was like I guess I could start making videos with this free time I have to get wow consider and get paid so that's how it all got started wow <laughs> that's crazy so were you always
0: uh you brought up uh old earth creationism uh actually I think I actually brought it up earlier but uh Were you always uh, an old earth guy or were you like me? Yeah, I wasn't either. So tell me how, talk to me about that journey. What was the convincing factors for that for
1: you? Well, when I became a Christian, someone showed me Kent Hoven, which was a big mistake, but he's very charismatic. (laughs) He is. He's very charismatic. He's very confident. He comes across as very convincing if you don't know what you're talking about. So when I finally accepted that I was a Christian because of the evidence for the resurrection, I started to get into evidence for young earth. And at the time, there was this ancient social media network called MySpace. I went on there and started debating for a young Earth. Wow. I got the crap kicked out of me. So then I questioned my faith for a little bit. But then I found Hugh Ross, became old Earth, and then slowly over time moved more into theistic evolution.
0: Nice. Okay, what it, no. what's the difference for – actually, I'm not even sure I know the difference. Uh, theistic evolution versus old Earth creationism.
1: So old Earth creationism tends to be – and it, it can vary between who's defining it, but older earth creationist tends to be the view that the old the earth is 4.6 billion years old, but evolution did not necessarily happen. Like maybe God created life supernaturally. I think Stephen Meyer has this idea that God created life, and then he shows up later and creates the Cambrian explosion. And he shows up later and creates new species. And he shows up later, you know, it's this progressive creation idea. Theistic evolution just says, no, there's none of this. God did not have to supernaturally create everything. He could fine-tune the universe to create natural laws to bring about life through evolution so it's it's generally it's you just go all in you're like whatever science says is probably what god did
2: yeah so i i take a, a six-day stance
1: um six-day uh,
2: creation stance um but i don't really care so, when, so like what do, what do you think about that like i don't take i don't take a hard stance where i'm gonna like you know, get into a debate with somebody, but I listen and I love learning and having the conversation. But to be honest, like that and eschatology, I really, I really don't care. As long as we don't distort the, the, the Adam and the fall of man, I think we're still biblically good for the case of, you know, our redemptive process through Christ. Um, yeah. And I don't know, what don't What do you think? Evolutionist,
1: about? Well, as a theistic evolutionist, I affirm there was an historical Adam, there was a literal fall, there was a literal garden. I don't think any of those issues. Are incompatible with evolution and i've gone into this in detail on my channel so i confirm all that and i'd say there, there's two types of young earth creationists i encounter there are create young earth creationists that don't care They're like whatever it's what i affirm but i'm not going to defend it or fight for it then there were the militant young earth creationists that know i work for the devil and i collect a check from the new world order government group you know every month like those people and so you, there. so it's like if you don't believe it's, there's a group that are, don't care and then there's a group that if you don't believe in a young earth like ken ham you're going to hell, according
0: to that. We have gotcha. a running, a running thing. We're going it's to punch Ken Ham. I'm going to the Ark exhibit here in uh, next month, so we're going to punch Ken Ham in the stomach just because of his position. He's not yards. Noah.
2: <laughs> You're not Noah, Ken. Stop. Oh man, he's trying Ken to be Ham Noah. Is, He lives is in mighty. the Ark. He lives there. He does no, no. in the dinosaur exhibit. It's been
0: proven. He is one of the dinosaurs in there. No, I don't know. I just. Oh, That'd be funny. We to like a wing to himself or something. Yeah, and I will go live for that if you're watching. I promise you, I
1: will what make. I you... love that. What I love Ken Ham is doing is he's actually building a replica of the Tower of Babel. That's his next thing, and I just, I just think Babylon Bee should come out with an article saying that the workers on Ken Ham's Babel dispersed from the site because the God confused their views on Genesis. <laughs> All of a sudden the workers <laughs> broke out and we're saying, I'm a progressive creationist, No, I'm a theistic evolutionist. Oh my god. Well, That'd be awesome. age. And it's like they had to disperse because they could no longer agree on how to interpret Genesis.
0: That is so so what have what have you found uh with your change of views? Uh, how does it how is it more cohesive with the rest of scripture? Because I I have my personal like I'm seeing a lot more uh, cohesion. Uh, in, in my, uh, as I study now. And I, I, I've been really like you introduced me to, um, Michael Heiser, which, uh, mm-hmm. has been, is just a fascinating guy in my opinion. Uh, his, his divine counsel, uh, approach is very interesting. Uh, his, you know, the unseen realm book, uh, I've been listening to his podcast too. Uh, it's just been, um, it, it is, it makes God bigger to me when I start to see like, the, the fine tuning in which God has has uh interacted with with us and humanity and it just it makes God so much bigger and the idea that and I don't know if you take the same stance on his divine counsel as in like because uh, I know in your Genesis video you talk about you know the 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 temple uh Eden being the temple of God right and, and please mm-hmm. correct me wherever I'm wherever I get this wrong but um and the idea that the imagers of God, uh, we as human beings are the imagers of God. God doesn't need idols like these other false gods need, but God, you know, he puts his image, his stamp on us. And we represent and reflect back, uh, the goodness of him. So do you have a, do you kind of take a divine counsel stance in the, in the sense of Of the way that God's in Do you? Okay. Can you walk me through like how you think of that?
1: The divine counsel. Yeah. Like what is, how, I I wonder if we see it the same way or not. Yeah, I think it's, so the way it's understood in scripture, it's this idea that there are these heavenly beings that, uh, do not exist sort of on our physical realm. They sort of exist with God in heaven and they, uh, will because God's a relational being and he created us for relationships. They, it's the same kind of concept. Uh, they're, they're in heaven. Uh, They're thought of as sort of advisors, even though God doesn't necessarily need advisors, but he's a relational being. He likes to work through other creatures so you can see them in that sort of regard. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the New Testament, they get reduced to just sort of angels. So the way we think of angels, archangels in the Old Testament, it would have been God's divine counsel, the sons of Elohim. Uh, These are the beings that sort of surround God in his temple and praise him, worship him, advise him, have relationships with him, that kind of sense. But in the New Testament, everything this 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 high hierarchy just sort of gets reduced to god and angels right uh which which is it's not contradictory it's just a new way to categorize things in the new testament
2: i, I guess mormons actually take that and they take that narrative a little too far and then that's where okay. they create like yeah Mor- like select-
1: mormonism <laughs> is mormonism It is my view is if someone somebody read the bible and said you know what this needs star wars <laughs> Yeah.
2: <laughs> Oh, that's so good.
1: Space travel. Yeah. His name was yeah. Joseph. He did
0: that. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Smith. Well, yeah. maybe perhaps the Lord gave him a prophetic view of Star Wars.
2: Now, uh, man, when I look in this hat with these particular like stones, it all makes
1: sense. Yeah. It, yeah so it's, <laughs> it's, I always tell people the moment you find evidence, to, if you find me one iron weapon or one evidence of a horse from the New World in a pre-Columbian era, all right, I'm on board Mm, to this day. Nothing. So
0: that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a fair assumption. I do like, so one of the things that appealed to me about the divine council was the idea, I guess I never really wrapped my head around it, but um, I always used to think like the, the, the people that were not worshiping God, uh, Yahweh God, but were worshiping these other gods. I always just kind of, I think I just thought of them as like just deceived, like in the sense of, there, there's nothing like real behind it. There's nothing of substance behind their worship. But when I was introduced to the idea of the, the, the divine council um, to see that these that people are worshiping these, they're, they're just counterfeit of they're not fake. But they're counterfeit. They emulate God in such in such ways. They require worship. They desire worship from people. Uh, they often speak to their prophets or whatever. So there is a supernatural aspect even in these little, you know, lower, uh, lower case G gods. Uh, but there is some substance behind them. Is that, uh,
2: is that? Are, are you trying to say like Baal was act? There was actually power behind.
0: Yeah, like Baal is is a divine being that is not equal to God, but it was created by God. That is Like a fall, like an angel that had fell. Yeah, or rebelled. I mean, I think the the rebellion is more the thought process, I think, behind that.
1: So what I I tell people is when we get into this realm, everything we're talking about is speculative. Right, yes. Uh, So, like, I mean, sometimes the Bible talks about idols just not being real, being fake gods. And sometimes it talks about other Elohim out there that are lesser than than the God of the Bible and people worship them. So anything in this is speculative because we just don't know that much about the, you know, to quote Heiser, the unseen realm. Right. But there is entirely a possibility that some of these deities behind the ancient Near Eastern gods were real. We would call them demons. Uh, They would be rebellious creatures that decided they wanted to be God. The way I sort of compare it for a modern audience, is it's basically like the King of Sauron from Lord of the Rings in, in Lord of the Rings Sauron was wanted to be a God King. Uh, he wanted people to worship him as a god uh, and not you know the true creator uh, so he sets himself it's sort of like that kind of thing you know you could think of the the the, the tower of Baradul in mordor as like a false idol that the orcs would go and treat him like a god king same kind of concept there so that's kind of what a good way to sort kind of have like an analogy of it
2: yeah your and video t- by the way i was just what? saying your video by the way of uh uh, it was that some girl, she's like, hey, good guys that are single, what are you doing? And it clips over to you
1: just reading Lord of the Rings in the bed. I was <laughs> like, nice. I've read <laughs> Lord of the Rings so many times now. I cannot. Nice. Are I you reading the loud. new Amazon series? Read... I am. Um, but I've read the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy out loud to my daughter sure. over the course Aww. of nights. So I know that. But, yeah, I'm watching the new Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it is God, or the new Lord of the Rings show, and it's God-awful. Yeah, you know, it's an I've utter disaster. Yeah, in terms of how the script is written, it's boring. It's stupid. But and I I didn't know that was going to happen, but I knew they were going to crap all over Tolkien's philosophy, and that bothers me because Tolkien's very near dear to my heart in terms of his philosophy, and I'm going to probably do a YouTube video on Tolkien's philosophy mm. as, as soon as the series is over, and point out where the show gets Tolkien's philosophy wrong and how they actually. They give like the like they give like the good guys in the show, us the philosophy of Sauron at times. Uh, like they 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 basically turn Tolkien on his head. The good guys are now have the the philosophy of the bad guys.
0: Interesting. Well, that uh, right. I mean that makes sense in a world that's really trying to push to a certain kind of audience. I think, and uh, it makes sense. It would be less I guess less appealing in some ways to keep. Uh, I mean, I still love I still love the original uh, trilogy. So to me, I, that's 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 where it stands for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm also a big Chronicles <laughs> of Narnia fan too.
2: Compared to the books, uh, do the movies compare in your opinion?
1: Do they do a good job? So first, I just want to uh, give a funny story. Did you know that uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were friends, and they almost ruined their friendship over C.S. Lewis, including Father Christmas in the Chronicles of Narnia? I didn't know yeah. about the Father was... Christmas thing. I knew they were friends though. Yeah. Tolkien was so mad about it. He thought it was the dumbest idea. The friendship almost ended over that.
0: <laughs> so,
1: wow. Really? About, oh, yeah. He was very mad. He, like, it was he took that hard of a stance. Like, hey, this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is <laughs> wow. the dumbest thing you could Yeah. He was so mad about it, which is just hilarious now. But the movies are good, in my view. Uh, they don't capture Tolkien's philosophy as well as they could. But I understand they're constrained by the, the parameters of filmmaking. Uh, so I I. I think at some points I think the two towers changes too much but it's sometimes they don't capture Tolkien's philosophy that well like in the books Aragorn leaves Rivendell with the understanding he is going to be king of Gondor he knows it in the movie he doesn't want it until like towards the third movie like it's like mm. I've rejected that path and that's not Tolkien's philosophy and I could go it's a lot deeper of a subject but some of the changes Jackson made I think actually improved the story in some ways. And let me give really? you a couple examples. That, well, so yeah, in, in do. the books, in the books, Gandalf picks up the ring from Frodo and he's looking at it going, Oh yes, yes, this is dangerous. Keep this uh, in the show or in the movies. He's a go- he's gonna he's going to touch it on the floor after Bilbo drops it. And it's like, he can't even touch it because he's like, I can't, if I, I cannot even be tempted by it. So to me, nice. it just made it more dramatic. Another thing yeah. I think Jackson changed that made it more impactful was at the end when Frodo is, you know, fighting with the ring, and Gollum take, bites off his finger, Golem just sort of, they're wrestling, but then Golem falls off into the lava. Uh-huh. In the movie, Frodo almost falls off, and he's hanging on, and then Sam has got to reach out and save him, and you have that very impactful moment. That I think that, that impactful moment there really captured what Tolkien was trying to do in his philosophy about the, the power of love and friendship, and how Frodo is— basically given up and he's going to just fall in and the only thing that pulls him out of utter despair and death is it's the just, fact that his wow. his his companion sam saves him and pulls him up and i think it's just a really good analogy of people who have like fallen deep into like you know addiction or sin and it, you yeah. really need someone else to pull you up so there's a change i think that jackson made that actually i think captured more of tolkien's philosophy wow. but then at other places i think it, it's not present as much as it could be so you know there there are Overall, I give the movies like nine out of ten. They're phenomenal. They capture what I think they can do within the parameters of film. Uh, some places I'm upset about. Like I don't, the Helm's Deep thing was just not done well. But I mean, other places I think Jackson did really good with what he was trying to do. But definitely no on uh, the TV series. <laughs> the TV series is god awful. No one watched that. It is you will be bored to tears. I've read comments, people think they fell asleep during it. Like my wife is it a is. casual Tolkien fan, she's not like hardcore like I am, but she just got out her phone when she was watching. She's bored. I mean, the show is yeah. boring. It's not even good. If you can just if you don't even understand Tolkien's philosophy or his the or his, his world or his lore, you're not even gonna enjoy the show. I can promise you that. It's just super boring. I haven't even mm. there's there hasn't been
0: like a good show that's come out in a long time. I mean, I would say Stranger Things for me, like the first two, maybe three seasons but I haven't even watched the fourth season.
1: I'm like disinterested. Do you, do you watch any of those shows, Mike? No, watch the fourth season of stranger things. It's actually good. Yeah. Uh, Stranger things is actually in my view, the type of show that Christians should be doing because it's analogous to a lot of Christian ideas. If you think about it, uh, 11 is a Jesus figure, you know, this otherworldly creature that's able to send people to hell and bring people back to life and she's like the savior kind of thing.
0: Interesting. Uh, this
1: is the stuff Tolkien talks about in his works about how to do storytelling. You don't you don't be you don't do C.S. Lewis according to Tolkien. You don't go all in on Chronicles of Narnia and you have Jesus so obviously, you know, Aslan. I mean, it has yeah. its place, but Tolkien's like less analogy. Like don't be so obvious. So you could think of like, I think the final season of Westworld has a lot of Christian themes in it. Um, Not direct, not obvious, not, um, I don't think they directly did that, but it's just indirectly from pulling from our culture. The same kind of thing with stranger things. You can get a lot of Christian themes out of it. I think accidentally just because they're drawing from the same cultural river that Christianity has inspired, but I I love the show. I think season four is one of the best seasons. Actually, Really? Well, I guess. No no spoilers. I haven't seen season four yet. I haven't seen it either. So yeah. Um, it's it's been my favorite season so far. And that, that's saying something is I thought season three was not was the my least favorite.
0: Oh, OK, yeah. cool. I, I actually really liked the the mall scenes and the big monster battle towards the end. I've, I've, I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, I felt like some of the I, I loved the the idea of Russia being the bad guys again because it's so 80s, <laughs> you know, it's so yeah. like Cold War and. Uh, everything's Russia. Everything's bad. They just needed a few more Germans in there, you know, and it would have been, it would have been complete.
1: My, my problem should... with season three is that I went to film school. So I, that was my undergraduate. So oh. I really and here's the thing. I, I, I will tell you that what makes a good film from a bad film in a bad film plot drives characters. You just have a plot unfolding and the characters have to react to it. constantly.
2: Christian movies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In a good film, the characters drive the plot so you nice. you develop a philosophy you and ideas you want to imbue into the story you b- imbue those in your characters and then your characters move the plot forward and the plot drives the action a lot of people like do that, that in reverse they have action to build a plot and then it forces the characters to react so think of lord of the rings it's frodo's love for the shire that makes him leave with the ring it's frodo's uh, it's frodo's decision to ch- trust strider that moves the plot forward. it's frodo's decision to take the ring to mortar that moves the plot forward. Then it's his decision to leave the fellowship that moves the plot forward. Uh, like Rings of power is the exact opposite. Things just happen, and the characters have to react to it. So a good uh. story is the characters driving the plot. A bad story is the you the the, the writers are so obsessed with a the plot they just make it unfold, and the characters have to go along with it and react to it. Does this so just due to your education as uh, you know being a film
2: uh, doing film in your undergrad does it ruin movies for you? Like you can't just sit back and just
1: enjoy a movie and just. No, not necessarily. It's just, I can, I think there are just, I can't. You pick it out quickly. Don't you. films. I can't watch films that don't know how to do character development. If there's no gotcha. good character arc, if there's no character development, then I'll just be like, this sucks. Uh, but nice. I can still enjoy stuff. <laughs> I mean, there's pl- the movie Prey that came out recently on Hulu, that mm. was phenomenally done. Beautiful character development, beautiful character arc. It was done really well. I had no issues. I, I had very few issues with it, I would say.
0: And that's in the Predator universe, right?
1: Yeah, it's done yeah,
0: well. Yeah, that looks pretty interesting. I might have to put that on my list then because I've been looking for better things. to. Like one of my favorite shows that my wife and I watch, uh, we're re-watching it. We're almost done with this Lost. It's uh, from like 2005 with uh, the plane <laughs> crash and everything. I love that mm-hmm. show. It's. I think it's one of the greatest, uh, even even with the chaos of the, the ending being weird and bad and everything else like I, I just think it's such a great show um, yeah, I haven't I haven't watched it yet it's gonna
2: I imagine it's gonna consume a lot of my time
0: bro that's Mike have you watched
1: lost no I've not watched any wow
0: anymore. dude I feel I am so alone on this island over here oh my <laughs> goodness
1: gracious You're lost. did, did lost. your undergrad
2: inspire your YouTube channel in any way like how you go about developing your your because there when I watch your videos there's a lot of interaction you clip over to either imagery or you know you have your your backgrounds you, you know, text like the way it fades it, it's just well put together all that i imagine play I, you have a team of people as well don't you no it's just me really so wow i can't think of uh what video it was but it seemed like you know you had people who just are that who,
1: good logan that's all help it is. you do everything yeah i had a, i had an editor for a year now but unfortunately uh, funding just sort of has been in the mm. toilet this past year so that's i just had to let him go unfortunately he did a couple where videos, can we help? But... do you still do funding uh, is there yeah, still, like, I, I, a Patreon for you yeah patreon.com slash inspiring philosophy inspiringphilosophy.org slash donate people can go and donate there but i mean it's just been a really hard year for donors and for ad money so it's just been... yeah inflation doesn't make it dude i spent like 200 bucks at the grocery
0: store today i'm like dude
1: how is this that expensive and he's got 12 kids
0: I do. I have yeah. so many. No, I only have four. You guys so own twelve apostles. No, no, no. Okay, jeez. <laughs> oh man, I have four. And, and he's not feeding them well.
2: For, with two hundred bucks, he ain't
0: feeding all twelve. I know,
2: right? The little one, one of them is already too. an adult,
0: so he doesn't live at home anymore. He's married. Okay. Uh, Ooh, that's no, good. but uh, uh, what about do you, what about your family? I don't know if you like to get too personal. Do you have uh, you have children or? Uh, I you said you had a wife, a daughter. Right. Okay. So one mm-hmm. a daughter and a wife. One daughter, one wife.
1: Me nice. Very cool.
0: Well, that's awesome, man. Um, well, let's, uh, let's see. So uh, we wanted to, I, we got a lot of people and kind of sidebarring in the, in the comments there. I'm trying to figure out whether there's some good questions to ask. What, uh, what brought you over to TikTok? Uh, Cause you haven't
1: been on oh, it for man. super long. Well, I mean, what brought me over to TikTok was just funding was actually decreasing was part of it. I mean, again, wow. like I've told you, it's been a really bad year for funding. And the thing is that YouTube changed its entire algorithm about a year ago and just screwed us all over in ad revenue. So I saw my videos it, like it really slowly did. declining in terms of views oh, no. and it was getting bad. And I was like, and everything was going to shorts. And I'm like, I need YouTube, sh- YouTube shorts. I guess I should get on TikTok and use those for YouTube shorts. Yeah. So it was sort of like one of those things. It was like, this is where it's going. It's all going to short stuff. And TikTok is getting so much traffic. I just have to be on it. So it was a reluctant, I didn't want yeah, to, to do it, to be honest.
2: TikTok really did change the way we do social media in a lot of ways, right? Uh, Instagram had to compete, create reels. Um, yeah. you, you, you see YouTube ad- adjusting. So
1: other platforms like just not getting the same attention like uh, Snapchat. So you know, it, 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 it's part of the calling too. It's like, you got to go where the people are. And so and it, it was good because going on TikTok, I think sort of saved, kept me like afloat in terms of funding for the time being. Oh, good. Because uh, I found people in here who have never even heard of me before. Bro, and I hadn't. I was. I hadn't. <laughs> yeah.
0: And now I'm, I, I I'm, didn't I'm in. I'm all in. In fact, in fact, Michael, I've, I've really been meaning to. I, I am going to uh, patronize you. Oh, thank uh, you. Appreciate I, I, I yeah. do. I actually I, I really do mean to because I am gleaning from you, uh, learning from you. And I would I would recommend anybody out there that is getting value out of the stuff that Michael is producing with Inspiring Philosophy to consider that, because a lot of us I mean, a, a lot of people uh, do this for no expectation, right? Like we're doing it because we love the Lord. And, and a lot of the times we put our own effort into like, you know, we pay out of pocket for the podcast hosting that we have. Right. So yeah, we do. It's, it's, but we're excited about it. We're not, you know, we just want to do it to get it out there, which I would imagine is probably your take as well. Uh, you just want to oh, yeah. do it. You just, you have this creativity inside of you. You got to put it out there and you just kind of hope that someone receives it and, and can help yeah i'll I'll always do videos for
1: a long time but it's just that it's preventing me from having to get a job other than this
2: but however if somebody's talented right and they they're able to do something that benefits the kingdom moves the kingdom forward like we as believers should be supporting that so that like there's a reason pastors aren't bivocational right that they they're in their office they're studying they're counseling they're mentoring they're teaching they're setting up programs for you know developing and discipling their congregations I mean, same thing for people who have specific talents. We should be assisting in that always. Um absolutely. Like I, like I've Thank absolutely you. benefited from your videos in many different ways. Thank do you God. ever do any uh preaching?
1: Um yeah. or ex- I'm exposition be doing, okay I'll be doing a little bit this year. I'm going to Evansville, Indiana twice to preach at a church. Wow. First time I'll be on Does God Send People to Hell? And then in December I should be doing a Christmas type message. So Oh, me give clean. me your hell take. I want to hear it.
2: What, oh, is, so what happens? So, is it Dante's Inferno? Is it annihilationism, universalism?
1: Give it to me. Hell is where you are forced to watch Rings of Power on repeat <laughs> for eternity.
0: Oh, so right and now,
1: earth. <laughs> And after the first episode, people are is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Typically, uh, <laughs> I so, would just keep like that it. in mind. Yeah. So my view you... of hell. I did a long YouTube video called "Does God Send People to Hell?" Mm-hmm. My answer was no uh the the fire in hell first of all is not literal fire because a you're, there's souls in hell not physical bodies and notice how jesus talks about hell like the parable of the rich man in hell he's having a converse abraham and him are having a conversation if he was on fire he'd just be screaming the whole time but no he's able Would to you actually cons- talk and carry
2: thoughts so you you consider the so one you consider the um uh parable to be ac- an actual event, right? And we obviously would
1: say that because he, Maybe. Christ Christ gives a name and he doesn't do that in parables, right? Well, there's a reason he does that. I don't think it has anything to do with it being in real. I think this is the only parable where there's a proper proper name. And that's done on, on purpose because Lazarus was still a human. The rich man built his entire identity on his riches. He was a rich man or nothing. He had lost his humanity. Everything he was was defined by being a rich man. And that's all he ever was. And that's what hell is. Hell is when you build your identity on anything but God. If you build it on riches, you're just a rich man. It's on fame, fortune. Uh, you build it on, a, on another loved one you may have, build your entire identity on them. Hell is a freely chosen identity built on something else besides God going on forever. So God doesn't send people to hell. God is only the guy that throws the rope down and saying, you're destroying yourself from within. I'm the way out. Please take the rope. And most people say no, and then they end up in hell, and it's just a fire that burns from within. It slowly disintegrates you, slowly isolates you. So C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, when it comes to the doctrine of hell, it is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and give everyone a fresh start? He did on Calvary. To forgive them? They don't want to be forgiven. To leave them alone? That's what hell is. There were only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Those to whom God says in the end, thy will yeah. be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell.
2: Hmm.
1: Absolutely. Can you make uh, uh, Zila an admin
2: in your account? So yeah, she yeah, yeah, can um So, I, so here's my stance. I, I, yeah. So I say, obviously, we have to speculate in a lot of ways, right? Um, that, that the same way God is both here in the natural world and isn't, at the same time, like we see, like he's not actually here consuming, um, but he is at the same time right omnipresent. Um, it is in his character to be present everywhere, and hell is a created place. So I imagine I'm speculating that his presence in hell is what is actually causing the sinner to feel that uh that 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 pain, that weeping and gnashing
1: of teeth. Um I mean, what would you say to that? No? So My, my view is the, the Orthodox Church of America has some really good way to put it. It says the, the everlasting joy, God is in a consuming fire. The, the everlasting joy for the saints will be what causes the wailing and the gnashing of teeth for the sinner. It's this idea that uh, the consuming fire of God is glory and beautiful for the saint, but it's devastating for the sinner. Uh, this idea that is because who have you built your identity on? If you reject God... If you decide that you want to build your identity on something else, what tends to happen? Well, you hate him. He's a horrible, horrible thing. He's trying to destroy you from being God. It's the same mentality Satan has. It's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So why would you want to serve God? Serving God means you must surrender to your pride. If you don't surrender to your pride, well, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to keep consuming and eating at you and destroying you. So I think that's possible. But my view about hell falls more like C.S. Lewis and the idea that God doesn't have to punish anyone. Hell doesn't have to send anyone to hell. Hell is basically the idea of people. What happens when God leaves them alone? They're exiled. Great div-
2: so exiled. great divide
1: type of thing. Yeah, they're exiled yeah. from his presence to go build, become their own God somewhere else. But what the warning is, is that we were, because we were made to serve and to love him, uh, that will utterly destroy people because we've rejected our purpose. It's a slowly disintegrating fire from within. We're meant to, you know, that's what pride does. Pride slowly disintegrates and destroys us. And that's why we need Christ to save us. So those who do not take the free gift, there's this, uh, not this idea that God has to torturing one in hell, because they're going to do it to themselves by their own pride, their own sin. uh, And that's what God is trying to save us from. So when Jesus says repent, it's not judgmental. It's not meant to be horrible. It's meant to say, you don't understand what you're doing to yourself. You're becoming an addict of your own pride, and that needs to be destroyed yeah uh Uh, andrew's comment
0: is hilarious we have a question (laughs) here from i I have actually lots of questions now so uh, guys if you're asking questions please be patient i'm gonna try to get they all want to ask you personal questions mike um all right so uh let me go to a previous one so to hunger and thirst asks specifically he is referring to your mention of elohim previously and he i think if i can get his actual question that he asked better oh uh he said so you've stated some Elohim as actual gods other than Yahweh. Balance that against Isaiah forty three ten. He's asking how do you how do you take Isaiah forty three ten in relation to uh, the term that you and, so,
1: and yeah go ahead. Let's read the verse. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So no God was so before me there was no God formed nor shall there be any after me. So Heiser talks about these types of verses. Uh, I thought it was the other verse where it says there's no God beside me. Which is yeah, I've good heard one that argument well. too, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But I mean, it's like, this is sort of a, a claim of authority and highness in terms of his hierarchy, uh, because it's this idea like, if you could say like the greatest, there is no city beside the greatness of New York. That does not mean there aren't any other cities. It just means there's nothing as great as that city and likewise that's what isaiah this is i believe second isaiah technically is doing throughout this he's not denying the existence of other elohim out there he's simply saying that there are no none like the lord and you have to remember the hebrews don't really have a word for god like we have in english i mean what when we define god we think of a creator deity beyond the universe the word elohim is used to refer to demons uh, lesser Samuel. deities. It's you, the spirit Samuel. of Samuel. Yep. <laughs> spirit of Samuel for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it just basically means any occupant of the divine realm, of the spirit realm. It does not necessarily mean God, like then we like the way we modern Westerners think of God. So I don't think Isaiah is actually denying that. He's talking about sort of the heightened supremacy of the Lord. There's none beside him. There's none before him, none after him. It's only him who could ever reign and be supreme. No God is ever going to take his place. No God was there before him who was reigning. It's about reigning as supreme. He is on top. He's always been on top. He'll always be on top. He'll never be replaced.
0: Yeah, I think I I think I've I've heard Heiser make that same comparison to yeah. uh, it seems it seems to me, you know, it you have to. Sometimes it's easy to take things to be literal, actual, like this is he he literally means that there are no other gods or it is a it is a statement of his authority and his his station over the rest of the created beings, because we do know that there are angels. We do know that there are demons. So even even if uh, you want to debate about the divine counsel and, the, you know, being all of these other things, we we acknowledge that God has also created beings that are not human, right? And they exist. So if they if they exist, uh how you know, again going back to my point earlier, um if they if they were in rebellion, why wouldn't they be going after humans to say, hey, come worship mm-hmm. me. I'm gonna treat you better than Yahweh will, knowing full well who Yahweh is, knowing that they can deceive. Well, I mean Satan's the great there, deceiver as well.
1: There's actually some reasoning behind that in the ancient world. You, people t- today tend to wonder, why would they stop worshipping the creator start worshipping these lesser deities in Israel? Well, the reasoning actually makes sense. God doesn't need anything. The God of Israel doesn't need anything. But in the ancient Near East, uh, John Walton talks about it. There was this great symbiosis. The gods uh, cared for humans by providing order and protection. In return, the humans would feed gods. So the gods needed fed, given drink given sacrifices because they needed that to be nourished. The god of Israel doesn't need anything. He says I got a there's a thousand kills on a, a thousand cows on hills. If I if I wasn't hungry, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't ask you. I don't need you. So and that that's me, consistent you, across all world religions too. Mm-hmm. Um or
2: at least uh you know, a lot
1: mythologies. That, yeah. 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 But so think of it from you're an ancient Israelite. Okay, well, God isn't I don't need. God isn't going to need anything from me, but these other gods need something from me. I can trade blessings or curses or gifts, whatever I want, if I sacrifice to them, there's a God I can use to get the real desires of my heart. So of course they're going to go out and chase after these lesser deities. They can use them for gifts as sort of like a trade ex- exchange with the God of Israel. You can't do that because he doesn't need anything. Wouldn't that also explain with these other lesser deities, wouldn't
0: that also kind of explain how Pharaoh and his, his uh, prophets were able to emulate or you know, kind of counterfeit what God was doing. I mean, wouldn't yeah, that also entirely. be some?
1: Yeah, it's entirely possible there was something like that going on. Uh, we just don't know for sure. Right. Yeah. I. That's okay.
0: Very interesting. So, uh, what is your some people want to know, man? What is your take? Give us your 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 base take on Calvinism. That was yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Are yeah, you I, a Molinist?
1: Guess, yeah, I'm a Molinist. I'm not a Calvinist, but I do. I mean, I don't fight with it uh, because I don't think that's really the important thing to to focus on now. Um, I would not deny that I think Calvinism has not inspired some of my thought. Like see, like Tim Keller is very influential. Uh, And one of the things I will say I like about Calvinism is just the lack of worry, the fact that (laughs) God has got everything under control. And I think that's a good mentality for Christians to have. So I heard a saying, it's like I'm going to sleep like a Calvinist and preach like an Armenian. I think that's what we need to do.
0: Yeah, that's great, man. Uh, a lot of people were kind of debate. Somebody actually had brought up that you were a Molinist. Uh, I, I had not heard any of it, and, and quite frankly, man, it, I really do believe it's such a secondary issue. But uh, what were you always a Molinist, or was that uh, something that developed
1: later in your life? I think I was Armenian leaning. Definitely, uh, I think I just, I probably was. Just it wasn't until I discovered Molinism I really was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. And William it makes Lane sense Craig, that you really? would- did he help with it, that? Of
0: course, yeah. It would make sense that you were a Molinist, too, because of your philosophical background. To me, Molinism is philosophical Calvinism in some ways. Like, And, and that's just a loose way of saying it. But, you know, the because correct me if I'm wrong again, I'm going to say, I'm going to give a, because people are asking in the chat, what is Molinism? So, uh, well, actually, why don't you just tell us what Molinism is? Since you are a Molinist, you, it would just be you, much easier you do. Yeah. So
1: it was a counter Reformation idea uh, against Calvinism. This sort of like work with how does predestination and free will work? And so the, they came up with the it's from reading the scriptures and uh, doing philosophical studies. This idea that uh, you got to think of God's knowledge in three sections. So the first would be His natural knowledge. This is where God create, can create any world He wants. Then you have middle knowledge, and this is these are worlds where God can create with the decisions of free creatures so to give some examples maybe there's a possible world where i would freely choose to become a fireman maybe there's a possible world where i would freely choose to become a policeman given certain circumstances but maybe there's no possible world where i would ever choose to become a hairdresser the only way i could become a hairdresser is if god forced me to violating my free will so in middle knowledge god is going to pick a world that's consistent with the decisions of free creatures. So we freely make them. Then God in his natural knowledge uh, picks the best of all the worlds out of middle knowledge. And that's the world we live in 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 there. So natural knowledge or middle knowledge or sorry, natural knowledge, middle knowledge and free knowledge. And so the Molinist basically says is that we are the ones who make the free decisions, but God picked the world because this was the best one. Of all the worlds. Now you may say, well, God still predetermined everything. Well, no, omniscience does not determine things. God, what we do determines what God knows in the past. God, you got to think of omniscience like an infallible weather barometer. Okay, the, It doesn't cause the weather, but it always knows what the weather is going to do. Another analogy would be like this. If I get a time machine, and I go into the future, and I see everything you're going to do tomorrow, then I came back to today. Does my foreknowledge predetermine everything you're going to do tomorrow? Correct. No. That's the same way with god just because god knows everything we're going to do in the past it doesn't mean it determined everything we're doing now
2: so wait so go ahead quick, Logan, uh, so dr so dr white and dr craig's discussion on this on unbelievable you where, where does this middle knowledge come from right it's the, it's the phrase he kept repeating that it's, it's one can we prove it biblically that the apostles understood molinism or what Molina believed um and and where is this information that God is pulling, that he's now leaving it up to us to, in that middle knowledge, that we're freely making those decisions? Does so it, and, and I guess my take, does it give man too much liberty
1: that I don't think we have right well, now? I think we need liberty. I think that's what makes us human. We're not robots. I, mean, right. I think God wants I to. That. I mean, you know, if you. it's the old saying, if you love someone, you have to let them go. And if they come back to you, it was meant to be. I mean, that's real love without, if God forced us to like puppets on a string, that's not real love. So I think liberty is needed. And I think there's places in scripture you can see it. Like with Joseph being sold into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Uh, this idea that, you know, that they made their free choices and God still used good out of it. Or I think, uh, Paul, even on the ship, uh, when the angel shows up and says, you know, the ship, you know, you're going to be safe. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. You're going to get through the storm. Just after this, we see Paul in Acts saying, Seeing people try to flee the ship and he tells the captain, unless those men stay on the ship, we're all going to die. Yeah. So he still understood he needs to act, even though he's been told by God that everything is going to be fine. But that does not preclude him from actually going out and doing the right thing. So just because God has everything under the control, he still requires us to go out and act. You got to think of it sort of like Tolkien. Back to Tolkien. Okay. <laughs> it was divine providence in Tolkien's world that the ring was going to fall into the lava. But the only reason that happened was because Bilbo spared Gollum so many years ago. Then Frodo spared him. And, you know, the god of the Tolkien, the god of that world, divinely, basically, in a sense, made providence so that all the characters would, if they do their part, they would do their part in the right way so that the ring would fall in there. But we could say that that's just the combination. That's a good analogy for the combination of providence and free will. The characters have to act. Frodo just can't sit in the shire and know that God's going to take care of it. He has to take the ring out of the shire. He has to take it to Mordor. Likewise, Paul in Scripture has to go up and make sure everyone stays on the ship. He just cannot sit in the bottom and go, no, angel told me we're all good, guys.
2: Yeah. So so
1: let's take uh, Peter's
2: denial. Jesus gives him foreknowledge of the future, and and yet Peter still makes the decision. Could Peter have not
1: denied Christ? Yeah, I think he could have. But I think Christ knew that in that instance it was going to happen regardless because of the If the, the, path the information was given or not. Yeah, yeah, I think it would have happened regardless. And so Christ can see and can know that no matter what happens, Peter is going to do this at this point because of the path they're already on. It's like we're, on, we're in a car. We're driving towards a cliff. And I say we're going to fall off the cliff. And you can't be like, well, how do you know? And I'm like, well, you know, you could have stopped it. Yeah, like maybe a couple of miles ago, but we're already basically there. It's And I think yeah. that's kind of with Peter and Jesus. They were so close to it that he, Jesus knew that there was nothing he could do to stop it. So with hard determinism and like libertarian free will, uh, how
2: how much is the world around us motivating us? So with the Peter's st- uh, denial story, like there's there's this, the- this fear of threat, the 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 watching Jesus get like literally smacked and punched, right? So he's seeing this happen. He's being accused. His, his, uh, more than likely his, uh, he's, he's elevated. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, adrenaline is elevated, right? He's, and then he's denying, right? Do all of those factors play a role in that in a way that he's not really making a free choice in the sense of like it's in a vacuum, but he's, He's responding to the circumstances around him to the point even though he was given foreknowledge, he still – and I always use this as a case for Calvinism that it doesn't matter what any of the characters did during the crucifixion. Everyone was there specifically to play their specific role from Judas to Pilate, Um, and they could not have not been who they were or where they were when they were. Um, well, I, think, I guess that gets into the
1: should do, could do, and will yeah, do. Yeah, we're getting into issues of free will versus determinism. And there is a view called compatibilism, which just sees them as the same. And compatibilism is basically the idea that that collection of beliefs, uh, dispositions that you have is you. So it's still you making those decisions, even though it right. was a, t- a causal chain in the past. But you know, from a libertarian perspective… Uh, we don't see people as if they are necessarily just the direct result of their circumstances. They they're influenced by it. There's no doubt about that. But we still see a conscious agent at the center that sort of brings in all the inputs and can make a final decision uh, on what they're going to do. Now, I would call myself a soft libertarian. OK, so I'm I'm, I'm, so I'm not quite I'm, compatibilism, but mm-hmm. more lip, soft libertarian. Okay. Yeah. And I see, you know, you. Think, describe yourself for me. You're not going to be like, I'm a conscious agent that decides between different desires. You're going to describe your personality, your desires, your goals, your dreams, your thoughts, emotions. That's you. All of that collection of stuff I just mentioned is you. And that's what's making a decision. And, you know, you have a new memory. You're making new memories right now. There's like drops going into a bucket of water. They go in. You can never get them out again. They just sort of add to the evolution that is you. That's that, that, that whole process is sort of your soul, your personality. And that's you, but that's still you that's making the decisions in that sense. And I still think there's consciousness behind that for sure. Uh, so that's why I call myself sort of like a soft libertarian. And so I think that we have these free decisions, but we can also, when we're in these certain circumstances, we can decide wh- what path we're going to go on. And sometimes we can put ourselves on paths that we just, we have sort of set up a sort of personality in a way that now we're responsible for that personality And, you know, you could sort of think of someone who's turned themselves into an alcoholic. They can't be around alcohol without resisting. Well, what led to that? Hmm. Bad life decisions prior to that. What's going to get them out of that? Good decisions to get them in counseling, therapy, so they can overcome that. But they're still responsible for that person they have turned themselves into when they're in that alcoholic state. So you could say, you know, even like some of the hardcore, like maybe a, a psychopath murderer. He's still responsible. if He murders someone because he's turned himself into that person.
0: Yeah, I uh, it's very interesting because I, I do, uh, you know, Logan and I are both Calvinist, uh, but it again, secondary issue. Uh, I can see mm-hmm. a lot of the uh, conversations around Molinism because I mean, uh, whether whether we like it or not, there is a reality that if anything, our choices seem to be somewhat free. Yeah. We we're seem we're be able... resp-
2: And we're held responsible for this. Right. Choices. We're responsible
0: mm-hmm. for the choices that we make. And we seem to be able to make like maybe I don't really feel like I want a sandwich, but I'm going to go make a sandwich because I want one. You know what I mean? And so it's like uh, it. I think that there I think probably all of us are wrong in some ways. You know what I mean? I think you know Armenians can be. We're gonna Armenians will find out where they were wrong. Molinists will find out where, where they're wrong. Calvinists will find out where they're wrong. Like when once we see the way that God in in His awesome sovereignty and His uh, His higher being than we are and can fathom, I think we'll all kind of be like, "Oh, okay, that's what that actually meant," you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet we're all in the same way. We are all uniquely trying to understand the Lord better. We're all trying to uh, to know a little bit more of like, okay, who is he and who is he to me? And how is he dictating uh, my walk and and where I should go and what steps I should take? So uh, we there is an individuality, like what you said, Mike. It's like he gives us, we have individual dreams. We don't share collectively in our dreams. We don't share collectively in the way that God deals with us. So, um, you know, and not in all things anyway, but... Uh, yeah, I can see it, man. I used to get I used to get really frustrated a Molinists back in the day because I'd be like, well, when does God find out? You know, like when does he find out? And uh, but now I'm at the point where I'm like, you know, I probably I, I probably will never get the answer for that. You know, I'll just I'll go yeah. with the most logical understanding of scripture for me. I will continue to pursue what the truth is. And yeah, I'll, be, I'll be willing to be wrong. I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of people have is we're not willing to be wrong. Amen like, to that. If I can be proven to be wrong and it's scriptural and it's godly and it makes sense, I'm happy to call myself literally anything as long as it doesn't take away from Christ's Lordship, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. there Are
2: there scholars that you uh, think highly of, but yet disagree with them on
0: uh, uh, certain great topics? Question. Great question. Yeah. Mark
1: Smith is definitely a scholar. I think highly of he's a committed Catholic, but he's very liberal in his scholarship. Like he thinks that Yahweh was originally like thought of as a, son of El in Israel and then got appointed up and they originally had a wife and this idea. He's got very liberal views of the old testament, but I have a lot of respect for him. Interesting. in what he's doing. Yeah, I mean he's I think he's phenomenal. Bart Ehrman I still have respect for. I had him on my channel once. I disagree nice. with almost everything he says. Yeah. Uh, but you know you can't just dis- you can't disrespect him for anything like that. Right. So for like for
2: example Bart's uh I guess his his stance. What do you what do you think that is? Like he just blind eyes deaf ears that he just can't see it the same way because there was a turning point for you where the evidence your uh, your heart of stone went to a heart of flesh right
1: i don't like psychoanalyzing people i don't know what's in his head it's probably multifaceted uh but i mean i just think he's wrong i and the only thing i can debate him on is the evidence and debate it and argue against his position but i can't get inside his head yeah speaking of
0: debates man how many debates have you done now officially Good
1: question. I think um, around 20, maybe. I don't know. I'd have to look on my, on my YouTube channel. I have a, a list. I have a playlist of all my debates and there's a bunch on there, but I mean, how some of them are quite old. Prepare yourself for a little more like, informal.
0: When did you know that you were going to do like, cause for me, that's not in my wheelhouse. Like I love to preach. I love to talk about like Jesus and stuff, but the idea of a debate terrifies me. Tell me, walk me through how you came to conclude that you could debate.
1: Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did a couple debates very early on that it just were just sort of like, you know, I, I, I didn't think much of them. So I had done like about five, six debates or so, something like that. Yeah. And then the not, there was a time there was an atheist channel called The non Sequitur Show. And they said, we want to have you on the debate, Matt Dillahunty. And I was like, sure. And they're like, but, you know, you've not done a lot of debates. Why don't you debate this other guy first called Godless Engineer on If Jesus Existed? And if you ever go and watch that debate, I guarantee you have a good time. Yeah. Uh, because he was so underprepared. He did not do well. I, I mean, like, there are people in the comment section saying, I'm a Jesus mythicist, and now I'm not sure after this debate. Wow. Uh, so, what is
0: the, What's the name of the debate again? I want to write it down.
1: Well, if you just go to my YouTube channel, okay. and you go to my playlist section, I have my live debates. Okay. Uh, but okay. the debate itself is called uh i have it right here godless engineer versus inspiring philosophy a debate on the existence of jesus christ mm. and then it's part one and part two because yeah he's a mysticist so it's part one and part two because we got cut out halfway through and had to restart the stream but then after that i got to debate matt dillahunty i did i thought again it went really well because we were debating if religion is harmful or not mm. and again he just was underprepared. Um, i had all the studies he did not uh, and then those two debates did very well. And I just people then started and then shortly after that modern day debate started his channel. and He's like, I want to start a debate channel, please come on so I can grow. Wow. So I was like one of his first people on to help him grow. And then so it just sort of just kept going from there. I, I don't know, it just happened. I didn't have something, you know, planned. How do you gauge?
0: personally, whether a debate goes well or not? Is there like a response that you kind of look for? Or is it like, as you're speaking, and you see like the heads nodding up and down?
1: Or like, what, what's a good gauge for you? You 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 can't ever really tell. First of all, every debate I've had, someone on the other side will always say they're side one. It's going to happen. I, yeah, never, gonna I've never had you. one debate where someone's like, you know, no, I, all the comments are in favor of me. Uh, it's just the way it is people are Can't always going to root for the so. person they want to win so i don't i don't i don't gauge it by that what i think happens is i gauge by the topic did i make the point i wanted to get yes did my opponent mm, i don't think so i and i so it's like do i think i was able to get my point across and do i think my opponent got his point across that's kind of how i gauge it Gotcha. Yeah,
2: right. it was it was either John Lennox or William Lane Craig that said that they don't really do debates to convince their opponent uh, that exactly. God exists, but more so that the audience gets to hear uh, exactly. a a
0: a, um, a coherent
2: like a thought answered. process yeah, for sure. yeah arguing in favor of Jesus and, and yeah uh, the truth of Christianity.
0: That's a good point. I have to ask this question for Agape God's love here because she—I think it's a she. She's been asking. Uh, she wants to know. He or she wants to know. Uh, will you be doing a series on Christology anytime soon? And if so, when? That's necessary. For it's all not. Of it's
1: not on my current list right now, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so I, I do I want to you know. do something on the Trinity, though, and, and showing yes. Jesus is God. Because I'm sick and tired of these anti-Trinitarians, especially on TikTok, uh, pushing all this nonsense. So I'm going to go probably do something like, did Paul believe Jesus was God? Did Mark believe Jesus was God? Did Matthew believe Jesus was God? And do something like that. Because I think it's pretty clear if you read the Gospels, they all thought he was God in the flesh. And not just some yeah, lesser deity. They thought he was Yahweh from the Old Testament, for sure. Sure. Uh, second person or the trinity so i want to do something like that for sure uh it's just i have other topics i got to get to and there's only so much i can do at a time absolutely yeah, i get that yeah uh, i think christology
2: is something that we as christian tiktok creators need to start doing more of um you know a lot of a lot of people are kind of lost in the sauce uh, oh here's, here's a lot of other good- trinitarians now because it's
1: hip now it, it it's like you're you're rejecting something the core doc one of the core doctrines of our faith that's a no-no you're a heretic now <laughs> yeah, we just
0: had we just had Andrew uh, from does TikTok. Andrew does apologetics on, and he his he came from a, a, a oneness Pentecostal church, oh. and so he was explaining the you know the the turmoil which that church kind of brought upon him until he realized the the severity and the importance of the Trinity, um, mm-hmm. and it was a really great episode. Um, okay, Northam Lights wants to know because she's been bugging me about this all day. Uh, what do you know, if anything, about why Mark 16, 9 through 20, is only in some translations and not all? Do you have any, any knowledge on that?
1: Yes, because that is not in the original document. Our earliest manuscripts sort of end at Mark 16, 8, I believe, mm-hmm. and don't go beyond that. Uh, however, that's not the end of the story. There's a great book called The Mutilation of Mark by Clayton Croy. Ooh, and he points out that there was that. probably a lost ending of Mark's gospel that was lost. And then later, an author was like, tried to fill in the gaps based on their understanding of oral traditions, what is in Matthew's gospel. But so Mark's had an original ending that was just sort of lost. Uh, but someone later came in and added Mark's, the long ending of to Mark. And scholars have known this for centuries. They do not think that, they understand this was not original, part of Mark, it was sort of added later. And, and they that's don't why hide it's it. only in some. No, they don't hide it yeah. no 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 this is not a scholars know about this from day one of so getting their degrees it's never been a big deal All right there you go i hope
0: that that is the answer that she has been looking for because she has desperately been asking
1: i gave her that
2: answer
0: without <laughs> the from scholarly more references you, Logan.
2: <laughs> so shadow boxer keeps asking what do we think about the red heifer like no,
0: just yeah well so what? so michael you're you're a you are a post-millennialist that's your at your yep. current eschatology uh so uh, the red heifer thing i don't know if you've been following some of these end times you know kind of news things but apparently israel has finally gotten some red heifers back for the for their inauguration of whatever they're doing with the temple nowadays i'm not totally sure um which is still how, the dome of the rock so how do you uh how are your? How did you come to the post millennial conclusion with your studies? Uh, and were you? Did you always hold that position, or
1: were you something else before? No, yeah. so I was probably more um, pre millennialist uh, in my thinking, uh, but I think Scripture actually teaches post millennialism, and that's sort of why I went there. And I, I give three places where I think that's the case. So Dan, the book of Daniel talks about the statue and then the the kingdom of heaven comes and it's a rock that comes out from heaven and then it slowly grows and becomes a mountain consuming the whole earth. Uh, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grows and spreads out or like um, a little bit of yeast that slowly fills the the dough. Uh, And I think quite honestly, I think when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he, he knew what he was doing. He knew that this would work in the long run. And we just need to trust him on that. That's why he's doing it this way and not waiting for just a time to come back with a sword. I think a lot of pre-millennialists are falling into the same problem. A lot of the second temple Jews fell into at the time. They want a conquering Messiah. What do we want now? A conquering Messiah is going to come back, defeat the antichrist. And that's just not the way God likes to do things. He doesn't want that. He wants a kingdom of love and peace, a kingdom built on apostles, not on warriors, so why don't we help him do that? So if you're not a post-millennialist, you should at least be thinking like one. Yeah. I agree, absolutely man. I was it's an amillennialist millennialist for a while.
0: I'm no I'm no longer an amillennialist. millennialist I I I've come nice. over to the brighter side of it is the brighter <laughs> side. <It's>, it, <laughs> it is, is a lot more optimistic than on than millennial. A little <laughs> for sure. Um, what is your next video gonna be about, Mike? Do you have a video that you're working on right now?
1: Or series. Yeah, you know how atheists series, yeah. like to say there are two creation accounts in Genesis. They say yeah. like, oh, Genesis one and Genesis two are two different creation accounts. I was watching that the other day. The crap out of that. I nice. have a video coming out. I'm going to show that. Look, they'll will assign Genesis one to two four to P the priestly source. They'll say Genesis two to four is the J source. Well, I'm going to go through and show that it just doesn't make sense. Did you already not a sense? video on that, right? Nope, not yet done a video uh i did a little one in my genesis series but i'm gonna go into yeah more detail, okay gotcha. a lot more detail there are okay. so many pri- i'm gonna show there are so many priestly themes woven throughout genesis two to four that this is just another priestly source uh there's no way that you think of these as two separate sources merged together and I'll also look at other uh cultural uh, analogs as well yeah. Or like Atrahasis, uh, for example, that shows sort of like this dual creation aspect going on that scholars have pointed out. But everything I'm going to be putting in that video has come from a scholar. It's nothing I've come up with.
2: Yeah, And like you you point out in your your, your brief video that that was just how they wrote in the ancient Middle East, right? Like it was just a method at which, hey, let's, let's a 30,000-foot view, zoom in a little bit. And you kind of see that with… Genesis 1 and two right It's like hey God created man and woman made them in the, his image and then he goes into the story of how he makes Adam and Eve mm-hmm. um, specifically
0: but wouldn't okay. you yeah. what you would to kind of disagree with that though wouldn't you a little bit with the idea that uh, if if the the Adam and Eve creation account is different from the creation of humans account would, would you say that there is uh, a possibility for uh, there to be variants there? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's what I was. That's that's the video that I saw of yours. And once you mm-hmm. recommended John Walton to me, you gave me uh, I got uh, the lost world of Genesis one and the lost world of Adam and Eve, uh, which nice. is, yeah. has helped me to uh, to to pick up a little bit more because it really it's, it goes back to the context. It's like we we genuinely cannot we can't read the Bible and the Old Testament in 2022 and just expect it to mean what things in 2022 mean and to Mm -hmm. not have the view of what the hebrew writers and and what their world was like and what their culture was like when they were reading the very first books of scripture uh it meant something very different to them and and uh to to di- to be able to dive into that, uh, it, it really has opened up my eyes quite a bit. But yeah. uh I yeah, like I'll...
1: there's yeah, there's a good analogy to think of. Let's say a disgruntled wife puts on her husband's tombstone. Here lies Jim as he did in life. Okay, well, okay, we get it. He's a liar. Okay, but you get the play on words there. But what if a future historian comes to it and doesn't have that same play on words? So she inter he interprets it as if. He laid down a lot because he was lazy. He experienced sloth. Okay, mm. you can still get the idea there was a disgruntled wife there, but you get the wrong reason. That's kind of what it is like with scripture sometimes. You get the idea that maybe God's mad at Israel, but maybe they're wrong. he's mad for the wrong reason. We get the wrong reason. It, this happens in Revelation where, God, where Jesus says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And modern preachers will be like, aha, uh-huh, see, Jesus doesn't want lukewarm christians no. he would rather you be against him than for him no that's, or, or just lukewarm that's not what he's saying he's actually it's based, saying based on saying the water it's the type of water i mean you have hot water is useful cold water is useful lukewarm water is not useful he's saying i, I want you to be useful in some way he's not saying hot water or cold water is bad he's saying that you know luke you know because both hot and cold water have uses in the ancient world but lukewarm water did not it was useless so yeah. we understand jesus is mad but we get the wrong reason today that's good yeah, so uh, uh mis- misreading scripture through
2: western eyes that is the first thing he opens up the book with and he basically describes like uh, there's an actual region um yeah. that ex- that if you went up there was hot springs and if you went down you would get cold water um and both of those are useful but nobody drinks you know lukewarm coffee
1: you don't do that
2: <laughs>
0: right it's either hot or iced well wasn't the lukewarm also uh riddled with like bacteria and stuff that was part of the problem is it because at least with the hot and the cold it would kill off certain bacteria the lukewarm is just full of it <laughs> I, I don't remember maybe yeah uh, i don't know it could be i could just be making that up uh <laughs> <laughs> so baxter williams asks uh, as an agnostic I have more respect for certain sects of Christianity than others. Do you have more respect for certain atheistic metaphysics over others? And he Ooh. says, I'm a fan of McTaggart's version.
1: I mean, I have more, I have more respect for the non, uh, the non like new atheists or like the militant atheists, like the ones like there's a the new atheist movement. You see like the Dawkins, Harris Hitchens movement is like, they're not just saying religion is wrong. They're saying respect for religion is wrong. And that's just utter nonsense. So I have more respect for the more philosophical atheists, like someone like Graham Oppie, for example, who I think is uh, intelligent. Nicholas Everett. I think Thomas Nagel is also very intelligent as well. I mean, I have a lot of respect for a lot of very intelligent atheists, but I think the atheists that understand that we still need to respect other people's beliefs and not treat it, religion, like a virus or a cancer. Uh, like I, I don't have any, res- I, that, that type of atheism just doesn't make sense. It, it's it's utter nonsense. And historically, and so from a sociological perspective, it's an utter nonsense. I've gone to that research extensively at this point. So yeah, I have more respect for the atheists that are like, I don't believe, I think you're wrong, but I can still respect your beliefs and we can have a conversation. But I don't have respect for those atheists that think religion is poison. They're sure. just, they're they're that's a modern atheist myth my view gotcha. do you think of
2: any, uh, any of them that are have good arguments like the the naturalist um perspective on how we get morality or any like do any of those
1: i don't know um, I, I imagine you come across that stronger issue, that issue specifically i'm just not convinced i think if you're going to believe in objective morality it can't come from nature hmm. I'm, I'm with you mm. A thousand percent all right.
0: So Sid Tom says, Mike, I was watching your debate with Skylar Fiction. I respect clearing the air about the Old Testament, but do you maybe worry that you may read more into the passages than out of them? Do you worry about that, Mike?
1: I mean, I think we all have that worry, but I would need to know what specific passages mm. uh, you know, it's hard to tell what you're actually referring to. I mean, but I mean, I would say atheists read into passages sometimes too. They read a lot of like, they'll read God's emotions or his motives for doing things. Like, and he's always an evil, jealous or angry God, or, you know, he's doing it because he's just, you know, spoiled or insecure or something. So I could say that someone like, you know, scholar fiction could be doing that as well. I would Mm -hmm. need to know specific passage for more. So who, I mean, we we always bring our
2: predispositions into scripture and we, our, our presuppositions, excuse me, into scripture, and then you know we we tend to exegete. Uh, I think naturally we do it, and we have to pull mm-hmm. ourselves out um, and exegete it appropriately.
0: Yeah, for sure. If you, if you could meet one person that you have yet to meet, like who is who would you fan who would you fanboy over or fangirl over? Mike uh, being able to meet them within the Christian realm of philosophy, or scholarship, or yeah did you have anybody that sean mcdowell no <laughs> i've already met him <laughs> i know me i'm talking about me Michael Jones
1: Sean McDowell. we were this, asking you logan this, this is, is a core memory Michael me. is our guest dude i can't i can't think of anyone right now i'd have to i, no? I don't know i can't think of anyone i don't know it's, it's a lot of people out there
0: yeah i do want to hear uh, i know i asked you in messages recently uh if you had uh if you had heard Heiser's response to John Walton's book, have you read uh, John Walton's uh, demons and spirits?
1: I think is the name of the book. I have not read that one yet though. Uh, oh. I do want to take a look at it, uh, but I've not had a chance to. Heiser
0: mopped the floor <laughs> with him, dude on like, oh. not with him. But when I listened to one of his more recent podcasts, he, he tore it down ver- like uh, chapter by chapter. It was very fascinating. Cause uh, I've got this new love and a respect for Michael Heiser but I also like John Walton cuz you've mm-hmm. introduced me to both of them so to hear Heiser being so he like he actually says that he thinks that the, the book is harmful he he, he does, and and he's he prefaces it by saying look I I've recommended Walton to so many people he's like but this book I actually find to be harmful to mm. the body so I would I would love to hear some point down the future in down the road in the future if you do read that book I would love to hear what your take is on it because uh...
1: yeah I just haven't had time uh, but I know Heiser I don't know if Heiser's still mad at me though I wonder no. he is tell me what happened uh, well. I released my video a couple of years ago on the Nephilim and I said, look, I got respect for Azure, but I do not agree with him right. on the Nephilim. Right. Well, about a couple days later, he came out with an article that doesn't mention me, but like mentioned some of my arguments and it was oh. just eerie timing. And he was like, he was talking about how somebody on, you know, out there has been br- making these arguments online. And I'm like, yeah, me. Um, oh. And he was not very nice, I guess you could say, but I mean, like it didn't convince me either. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. So uh, I did watch your
0: Nephilim video, actually. And I think I, I do like your position uh, on it. It was more it. Re, correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been listening to so many different videos lately. But uh, your take is on that the Nephilim were the tell tell me what your take is. I, I don't even want to screw it up. So mean? My, my
1: take oh, is you. that the Nephilim are sort of, well, so first of all, the first part is the sons of God. And my my take is that this is a different author from later parts of scripture, and he's treating sons of God as if they're rulers uh, and they're engaging in activities they're not supposed to. And one of them is polygamy. So it picks up where Genesis 4 leaves us with Lamech taking multiple wives. Then it says, now even the sons of God, people who are supposed to rule and lead and guide humanity are doing this as well. Uh, and then there, you know, there's also violence on the earth. So it's just one of the sins included in the problem that's going on there. The Nephilim could be they're like their offspring, but I tend to see them as just sort of like ancient warriors of old that were, only, they were prideful. They, the literal translation is they were men of the name, which is this mm-hmm. understanding that they're focused on making a name for themselves. So if you read the episode of like Gilgamesh. Of old. Gilgamesh is like, I have to establish a name for myself. I have to go out and do great deeds to show how great and wonderful I am so people will remember me same kind of thing these ancient people who were trying to make a name for themselves so mm-hmm. that's generally i understand the nephilim it, they're defined as humans they're prideful warriors they're just they only cared about themselves and they were they were doing whatever they could to make a name for themselves including violence and trying to build up wealth you name it
0: that kind of stuff that's right so and it was the polygamous thing because he really looked at because doesn't he he compare he uses the noah and the fact that uh, noah only had one wife and his his sons only had one wife, so yeah. that was kind of a contrast to this the the nephilim and their, their their
1: polygamous ways. Yeah, well, it's like you just follow the story Genesis four. Uh oh, now Lemech's taking two wives, and then all of a sudden there's the sons of gods, and they're taking as many wives as they choose. Then they're in the, they're not righteous. Then we meet Noah, who's righteous, and how is he described? Well, one of the the key features we know about Noah is he had one wife, and his sons all had one wife. And we're told multiple times. Mm-hmm. So the authors really want us to re- remember want us to remember that Noah only had one wife because he was yeah. a righteous man. So I think the authors are doing this contrast on on purpose. Uh, you know, the sons of God they they took multiple wives. Yeah, but you know, a wise Noah man only had one.
2: Wife. I, I could not. I don't know how you could have two wives. No offense, honey. I love you. I don't
1: know how you could be like, a, like a, 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 an F like a fundamentalist LDS member, and look at your like six wives and go, one more,
0: just one God. more. I know,
1: <laughs> I know just this what? is going to screw up the bunk bed situation, but I got to have one more, just
2: one more. On. I love it. Yeah, and so oh. that's another thing. I love your playful sarcasm, but it's still respectful. Um, it's not, it's not demeaning, but yet you know that you're making a joke and being fun. And I don't know. I imagine you get some negative responses from people that you've (laughs) stitched like their TikTok videos and they're like, well, you're not being very Christian like, but I mean, it, it's, it's in good taste. I, and I do appreciate that. And I mean, it does make it entertaining and it does draw you in. So, um, you gotta be entertaining. I mean,
1: otherwise no one's going to watch them. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, people don't change is what I'm saying. I mean, people need to lighten up. I feel like I mean, I've almost I'm based. I myself have that account warning on my TikTok account because it's same. Like, yeah, I have been mean to people, and I'm like looking at the videos they've taken down, and it's like I didn't insult them, I didn't bully them, I just said their arguments were bad. Yeah. What's yep. the problem, TikTok? So I, people just get a little too sensitive sometimes. Uh, and look, I'm not I'm not trying to make it personal, but you did put out right. some bad stuff and that bad those bad arguments deserve to be destroyed so they don't lead people astray and sometimes using jokes can help with that so just lighten up and people people mock me too i've been i've been doing this since what 2011 now i'm just used to it now so i mean like you know what if i can take it you can take it too that yeah. is the
0: highest form of flattery my friend when people are out there mocking you that means you're doing something right what's uh, what has been one of the most bizarre responses to a video uh that you've done whether on tiktok or youtube do you have any like you have any like big like just like wow that's a very strange way that that ended up coming about
1: oh, man i'm trying to think of something i got one you well you i had um... me
0: conviction
2: one time that's good well, I... yeah yeah it was good uh you it was about <laughs> reading somebody asked you a simple question like how do you how did you get so smart and it was like i i just trained myself to read every day and it forced me to like, I need to start reading more. I, I saw good. that as a as a gap. And I'm like, okay, this is yeah. this is true. I, I've slacked off and I need to start reading much, much more.
1: Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I can think of one weird response is that I had these two atheists respond to me in an eight-hour hangout where they were gonna show all the scientific errors I made. And I was watching it because I was I ended up debating the guy. And I just could not believe the scientific and philosophical errors they were making. And the entire time they're going, the problem with IP is, you know, he's just not careful with the science. He's just not careful with the science. And in the in the video, they made a blatant, huge error. They confused these two uh, things in quantum physics called inequalities. They confused the two inequalities. So they go on this big log rant about how I don't understand the inequality, the legged inequality. And actually, they didn't understand it. And I was like... The irony of all this right now. And it was an eight-hour video response? eight hours. And I was like, who has the time? Did you watch all eight hours? I did because I ended up having a debate with the guy. Wow. Uh, But I watched it over the course of several days. Not not quite eight hours. But I mean, like, it just was so funny to me that he spent so much time talking about how I got scientific errors. And I'm like, which I don't see them in there because I was doing mostly philosophy. But then he made a huge scientific error, error, me, couple in my view. And it was like wow, the irony of you saying to be careful with the science and you yourself not being careful with the science.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is a bizarre, for sure. Now, what about on the other end of that? What are what are some good... Have you had any, like, really heart heartfelt responses to any of the things that you've done? What do you mean by that, though? Uh, just, like, you know, a good testimony. Someone, you know, other than us here doting on you, obviously, but, like, hey, I never really thought about God before or something like that that just was really touching for
1: for you. I mean, I've had really good testimonies, uh, if that's what you mean. Yeah. I've had a lot over the years. I mean I had one I, I I had one testimony that really I felt good about because it happened through TikTok is that she had discovered me because she was a fan of Dan McClellan. And then my oh. debates with my back and forth with Dan McClellan got her interested in my stuff. And then she became a Christian and then so I was like wow like, that's
0: you know, what it that's why we do those. That's why perfect yeah. Dan so, is I mean, deceptive, man. I thought for sure, like, I didn't know uh, w- when I first got on TikTok, I didn't know anything about him. And I, I must have watched one of his videos where he was making some sort of uh, case for, you know, historical evidence of on something. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good. And then like the next video, he's like saying, like, talk completely denying Christ's, you know, lordship. And I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. like, that's weird.
1: I I think he's a very, very intelligent man. Don't get me wrong at all. I just think sometimes he takes some of the hypotheses about the ancient years too far. And he'll say things like, you know, like we know that God of the Bible used to have a wife or that Yahweh used to be a son of El. And it's like, that's, you'll say in other videos, that's a scholarly reconstruction. And then in some videos, you say this is almost, you treat it almost Mm. like it's a fact. And that's just not the case. So. You know, I, I just think sometimes we go we, we got to be very careful not to go too far with those reconstructions and treat them as if they're facts. And I've done it too to be fair, I've tried to catch myself since then uh, in that regard.
2: Gotcha. Pub- uh, publicly, go right? Like, it, it, didn't you take down your
1: uh, case for 15th century Exodus? Yeah, like you took the video down. Yeah. I took it, took it all down, and then I redid it all with the Egyptologist that criticized it, and we did a three-part series, including evidence for the wandering period and the conquest.
2: Yeah, I'm so working my way is... through that, man. Give me, give me some time.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what does that mean? Like, what is the, what is the, the crux of the argument in the midst of that, uh, that stance? Because I'm unfamiliar with
1: it, genuinely. So the, there's two views on the Exodus: did it happen in the 1400s BC or the 1200s BC? Uh, and so the people who say the 1400s say, well, you know, if you look at the dating in the Exodus, it would take you to 1400, 1446 when the Exodus occurred. And scholars will respond and say, but a lot of these numbers are used for symbolic purposes. They're not meant to be taken literally. And they, we can see this in other ancient or eastern texts. Where they do the same thing. So we need to look where the evidence is. And if you read Exodus 1, it says that the Hebrews were there to build store cities at Pithom and Ramesses. Well, Ramesses was not built. It did not even exist as a city until the end of the thirteen hundreds. So Israel could not have left in the fourteen hundreds because they still had to be there later to build Ramesses. So that's why we have to have an Exodus uh, date in the twelve hundreds. And that that evidence actually ended up convincing me.
0: Wow. Okay. Very cool. Uh, I didn't know that that was even a debatable thing. That <laughs> just okay. goes to show where I'm at. Uh, but the, why would it would it matter? I mean, if it was different, would there be implications in the rest of scripture? Or is this more just uh, just trying to get it right sort of thing? I think it's more about trying to get it right. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Baxter asks, do you, do you think that uh, other religious texts have any unique value not found in the Bible? Or are they entirely unnecessary to the human experience in your view?
1: I mean, I think, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think we can learn things from... Buddhism, just it's a meat and bones kind of thing. Take the good lead to bad. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think if, I, I wouldn't know if I would say Aristotle's a religious text, but I mean, the gray area between religious texts and, you know, just philosophical texts can be blurred a lot, especially in the ancient world. I mean, is is Plato religious? I mean, he puts a lot of religious type ideas in his text. Mm. But, does. Uh, but I mean, I think we can learn a lot from Aristotle, Plato, these kinds of texts as well. Paul did this. Paul in Acts 17 quotes Aratus, who's a pagan poet, and now it's part of scripture. So when yep. people say, you can't do anything pagan, I'm like, well, then you're going against what Paul did because he quoted Aratus, and now it's part of scripture. Can pagan scriptures be useful? Yes. Can they be right. even part of scripture? Yes.
0: Yeah, in fact, yeah. in your in your Genesis videos, you bring up the, the fact that uh, other um, creation texts that are out there, Egyptian text and whatnot or maybe not Egyptian, but uh, some uh, a lot of those can be used to help better understand the mindset and the mind frame of the creation text in the account.
1: Yeah, I think we should do that for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you need to understand what they're talking and thinking about. And so you read other texts of the surrounding culture to help get a better understanding of that.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right. Yeah. Logan, do you have any... Uh, I don't want to keep you too much longer, Mike. I don't know how long you got, but we've been an hour and a half in, and that's typically where we start to kind of wind down. So, It's probably uh, wind
1: down, yeah. Yeah, sounds good. I don't want
0: to keep it. Look, hey, we're just happy to have you, man. If you would have told us that you only had a half hour, we would have been happy with just a half hour. So. Um, all <laughs> yeah, right, man. cool. Well, uh, what we typically like to do towards the end of this is to uh, present the gospel uh, to the listeners that are watching or maybe watching in the future. Uh, And we'd like to give an opportunity for our guest, uh, if you feel comfortable to share the gospel with everybody. If not, one of us will do it. And uh, and then we
1: can just kind of cut off from there. I'll do it in my own unique way. Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. If you don't accept Jesus, I'm going to come to your house. I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, um, Promise. So the way you got to think about this in a modern world is people just say you got to accept Jesus because he's your savior. But what does that mean? Mm. Well, think of it like this. Think of it like this. No matter who you are in life, you're going to feel superior to someone else. So if you're a religious person, whether you're like a Jew or, or you know Muslim or Buddhist, you can't help but feel superior to people that are not doing the religious tenets you see as necessary to achieve uh, the religious needs that you fit. You can't help but feel superior. And if you're not religious, you can't help but feel superior to religious bigots who are sort of are holding us behind with religion. And whatever you're a hardworking person... You can't help but feel superior to people who are lazy. No matter what you do or whatever you build your identity on, you're going to feel superior to someone else. But the gospel says you're a moral failure. The gospel says you can't be perfect, that you're going to fail. And no matter what you do, you're going to need a savior. Amen. So, you know, you can't, if you understand the gospel and not, i admit maybe not a lot of Christians do, but if you understand it, you can't feel superior to anyone. I remember there was a girl in, When I was getting my undergraduate, she was an atheist communist, and she spent a lot more time volunteering for charity than me. But, you know, why would I admit that? Don't don't I, am I not a Christian? Do I need to be better than her to show the world I'm better than her? Well, here's the truth. The truth is I'm just a sinner saved by grace. So it doesn't matter how good I am. What matters is how good he was. If that's at the center of your life, that's going to equip you to change. That's going to equip you to uh, bring the world into something far better because it's not going to be about you. Cause every other worldview out there is going to make it about you ultimately. But the only worldview that doesn't is the worldview of Christ mm. because it admits you have to be a follower of Christ. You have to admit you're a sinner that you need saved and that you are the morally inferior one out there. That that's just who we are as humans. If that's at the center of your life, that's truly going to give you something to live for. It's truly going to give you something that's going to motivate you to do the good. Uh, And of course, every other religion out there will tell you they have the the path to life, the path to future. But only one religion has God who actually got off his throne, came in human form and lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserved. And that's Christ. So even as Albert Camus admitted that, you know, evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to Christ because he suffers too. There's only one God who truly knows what it is to live the human experience and suffer and die because he loves you that much. And that's the gospel in a nutshell and that's why we call people to come to christ because that is truly unique that is truly different and that is truly what is going to change the world a god who leads by example a god who takes suffering on as himself who takes on human nature and comes and delivers us from it through his own blood no other god is willing to do that out of their love they they're on their throne and they won't get off but christ does
0: amen Man, they're going to have to change that saying to preach like a Molinist, sleep like a Calvinist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, brother. Well, hey, listen, we're going to get, uh, we're going to, let me close out a TikTok and then I'm going to end the broadcast. If you just stick around for just a couple seconds so we can do a, a little after action review uh, and then we'll let you go. So thank Real you quick, guys. before,
2: be, before wow. you close up, for yeah. everyone watching, so we got 66 people in here and then everyone on TikTok, uh, you, you can find Michael at uh, Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube, TikTok, yes. um, also his Patreon, right? So it is important yeah. to, if you enjoy his content, if you enjoy um, the material that he's producing and want to see more of that, and if you have questions um, and you want those questions answered and series is done, well, we need to, as a, as a body, support him and his gift um, uh, as much as possible. Uh, so just think about that. Um, Michael, where can they find uh, an opportunity to help uh fund and be a part of the Inspiring Philosophy uh
1: journey? So you can go to, on my website, inspiringphilosophy.org. You can there's a donation button there, as well as patreon.com slash inspiring philosophy. Uh those are the two main sources of what uh sort of keep me afloat and prevent me from getting a full-time job.
0: And keep liking all of his videos. Uh, liking and sharing actually helps too, because that algorithm will boost up and then TikTok will pay you some money as well. Although, albeit not very much, but it's something. Uh, <laughs> Three not cents anywhere a day. near
1: YouTube. Right. YouTube is yeah. so much nicer. Oh man, <laughs>
0: I, wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't getting so messed up. Well, uh, you can find this episode if you're listening now, if you want to listen to it later, it'll be on Spotify. It'll be on the Doctrines of Rad YouTube channel as well. So you can go back and listen to it Thank you guys so much. I we just thanks Mike for coming out man. This has been a, a blessing and a half man. We really appreciate it. I'm going to go ahead yeah, and Yeah, love to do it. Now. No worries. All right, brother. And we are